welcome to the I Ask podcast series. I'm your host, Adam Armstrong, Director of the Institute for the Advancement of Senior Care, or IASC. For our new listeners to the IASC podcast, we're a podcast dedicated to providing perspective and vision from top experts from across the landscape of long-term care to drive real, actionable insights into the improvement of quality quality of life for seniors. Today's conversation centers specifically on the intersection of the skilled nursing conditions of participation uh, from CMS and creating a a sustained culture of aging, highlighting specifically what that means in the context of both memory care and QAPI initiatives. As part of the 2017 Fall Memory Care Forum coming up next week in San Diego, September 14th through 15th, we discuss the themes around person-centered dining, uh, providing elements of choice in everyday life, and training staff to effectively and ethically execute behavioral interventions with residents with humanity and a light touch. Uh, so on today's podcast, we visit with Joan Devine, Director of Education with the Pioneer Network. Joan leads the development and implementation of educational programming for the organization, She is also a certified Eden educator and mentor and the owner and operator of JP Divine Consulting, whose mission is to support care partners on their journey to home. A registered nurse and former activity professional, Joan has over 30 years of experience in healthcare, having served in leadership positions in long-term care and acute care settings since 1990. As an advocate for the LTC culture change movement, Joan serves as a frequent speaker at the state and national forums uh, at both venues and currently serves as board president of MC5, the Missouri Coalition Celebrating Care Continuum Change. Uh, The conversation with Joan lasts around 40 minutes, so sit back and enjoy, and thanks for stopping by. Uh, Joan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. Doing great, Adam. Glad to be here. Fantastic, fantastic. How are things going over at the Pioneer Network? I know you guys have a lot going on these days. We we are busy. We are busy planning. We've been uh, involved with uh, conversations over the last month, actually longer than that, with, with CMS as all these changes have come about, which, of course, we're incredibly proud of because uh, of the role that we have had the opportunity to play over the years in policy and and uh, changes with the regulations to bring more person-centeredness to them uh, and really change the culture of our of our nursing homes. So it's a, it's a good time for us. Uh, lots of work on our annual conference as well as our webinar series and just trying to get education out to our uh, uh, out to our fellow pioneers. <laughs> I love it, fellow pioneers. Uh, well, well, I am thrilled to be interviewing you here today. And and, and our topic today for the podcast is the intersection between. Uh, the skilled nursing conditions of participation and a sustainable culture of aging. And Joan, I feel like you're the kind of the ideal person to be talking on these different issues. Uh, so Joan, as you know, the skilled nursing conditions of participation handed down by CMS have impacted notable change. And as a nurse and an educator, you know, which portions of the mandate have really stood out to you most since the October 2016 implementation? I think quality improvement, Quapi, is really at the heart of all of this because everything we're trying to do is a part of quality improvement, uh, performance improvement for our residents. And uh, the challenge, I think, for providers right now is that Quapi has been, you know, we, many of us have, many, many providers have worked on Quapi and trying to develop it 
for many years now uh, since we first heard it was coming. And, and so there's many pieces of it in place, but we're kind of waiting for that phase two and phase three uh, when we learn more what those actual systems and processes are going to look like. But I think ultimately it will help us to bring that decision-making closer to the resident, which of course the resident is the closest we could possibly get, involving their families, involving our care team, and the care team, as again, as close to their residents. So the, the CNA, the housekeeper, the maintenance uh, personnel, all those people who really have a, a part in, in creating the home that we're trying to create for our elders. So I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's kind of exciting. It's a little scary um, because, of course, there's always paperwork and and you know what exactly is that what exactly is the expectation going to be? But I right. think looking at the pips when we finally learn you know all about what those are, that's really your kind of your down and dirty. Uh, solve the problems where the problems are happening. Um, Barbara Frank and, and uh, Kathy Brady uh, did a, uh, a, a uh, learning collaborative with the, with the Pioneer Network several years ago on engaging staff in individualized care. And in that collaborative, one of the things that uh, was taught was the concept of huddles, of you know, that conversation, don't wait for that formal meeting. You know, you sit there when something happens. If I have a fall, let's have a post-fall huddle and talk about it right then and there when I can look at what happened, uh, when I can ask people questions that really knew, know what happened because they were there at the time. Um, so, you know, I think that's what we're going to start seeing as hopefully as Quabi evolves and, and people see that it really is, um, it, let's not make it too complicated, um, let's make it real. I think that's that's really well received, Joan. And I think too, when you talk about getting down to the the down to the residents level, even coming down to daily choices, right? The, talking about things like uh, yeah. dining preference and talking about clothing preference, uh, it, 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 daily activities, having more diverse programming. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about some of those choices and how and how that's sort of been incorporated into a lot of these CMS regulations? I think uh, choice is, is such a huge piece of the new regulations, and it's about time. Um, I'll share with you an interesting story. This is my first my first experience with the Pioneer Network, and it was about 10 years ago, and I was uh, at the annual conference up in uh, Minneapolis, and I was walking down the hall with Rosemary Fagan, who at the time was uh, the executive director of Pioneer Network, and just having a conversation with her. You know, I was kind of a nobody and just new to this whole to this whole uh, adventure. And as we're talking, Rosemary made a comment about, well, we allow the residents to, and she stopped herself, and she said, wait a minute, what did I just say? Allow. I can't believe I said allow. You know, we don't allow these people to do anything. These are mature adults, and it's it's not ours to allow. It, we can support it. We can create the environment, you know, that, that in which it can happen, but we're not the ones in control of this whole thing. And I have to tell you, that was a real aha moment for me um, on this journey, and it has really stuck with me over this time, you know, over the years. And I think it's something that hopefully will be an aha that through these new regulations, people will have that that 
provide quality of life, you know, part of quality of life for, for I think, pretty much all of us is that it's our life. Um, and so we have some control. You know, we always kid about the, the husband who controls the remote control. Sure. But that's a very real that's a very real part of life. And people come into nursing homes and all of a sudden, um, I don't give you choices. Or what I give you in terms of choices are really not the kind of choices you want to make. Um, and they're not necessarily real choices because I don't get to know you well enough to know how to help support real choices. I think the new regulations as we look at quality of life um, are going to really drive that so much you know, so much further. Uh, you, one of the things that you know, we hear a lot, in long-term care, we've done a wonderful job, and I truly believe this. Over the years, we've had our stumbles, and we look back at some of the things we've done, and, and we may question why we did them. Um, but times have changed, and standards have changed. And I think our focus truly has always been to do the best we can to provide good care for people. But you can provide good care for people and really miss the boat in terms of providing a good life for them. And restraints is a great example of that. You know, all the years that we used restraints, our mandate, our standard was that somebody wouldn't fall, and they didn't fall. Um, but heaven forbid the things that happened um, as unintended consequences of them not falling. And we certainly broke a lot of people's spirits. And, you know, having worked in, in long-term care back in those days, you look back at it now, and we certainly didn't have quality of life for those people. But these regulations are helping to take us that next step. And we're saying that really quality of life has to be the ultimate goal. And if quality of life is my ultimate goal, I'm going to provide good care because having your health maintained, uh, being as vibrant as you can, that's all a part of having a good life. So, you know, I can't have quality of life without having quality of care. We're, we're raising the bar, and it's a great thing. We'll get right back to this conversation with Joan Devine after a word from our supporting sponsor, the Fall Memory Care Forum. For this year's Fall IASC Memory Care Forum in San Diego, hosted September 14th through 15th, join your colleagues for two days of sunshine and two educational tracks featuring some of the most unique programming in the field. As our speaker faculty of nationally renowned experts takes the stage to tackle the biggest issues surrounding memory care. Hear from author and founder of the Hearthstone Alzheimer Care Paradigm, Dr. John Zeisel, author in 2016 NCCDP Educator of the Year, Josh Freitas, blogger and nurse educator, Rita Altman, and National Director of Dementia Care Programs for Brookdale Senior Living, Juliet Holt-Klinger, and many other national experts as they convene for two days of engagement and fun in San Diego. Professionals will also receive continuing education hours, so be sure to register and knock out your licensure hours before the end of the year. The conference begins next week, but you can still re still register by visiting iAdvanceSeniorCare.com. That's iAdvanceSeniorCare, all one word, .com, and I'm clicking the Memory Care Forums link. Again, that's iAdvanceSeniorCare.com, and click the Memory Care Forums link. And now, 
back to our conversation with Joan Devine. And and I think, too, Joan, your point is so well-received there, too. We talk about this concept of person-centered care. Where does it start with? Well, the person, of course, but then radiates out to family members, right? And, and taking a look at empowerment of families. Do you find that the CMS rules and regulations, do you find that it's influencing family empowerment, um, you know, talking about how they interact with a skilled nursing facility or a st- uh, assisted living facility? ultimately will. I don't know how much the public truly understands um, everything that's happening yet um, and what all this means, but I think as communities start to open up more um, and start to, to look at their relationships with their families, um, I think we'll see that. I think there is a challenge to this for families and, quite frankly, for communities, and that is one of the things that the CMS regulations are clearly saying is it is the resident who is the primary decision maker. and that can be a challenge for families because um, for many years as a society, we've looked at our elders as someone who has gone back into a state of dependency at that point in their life. And so now all of a sudden it's okay for me as the adult daughter to make all of mom's choices. Um, And, you know, I I can speak for myself. I, I love my mom and I think I know her pretty well. But I don't know her well enough to make all her choices for her. Um, and, and she, good or bad, she sometimes makes choices, uh, either verbally or non-verbally right now that, uh, are maybe not the ones I would exactly make, but, but I, you, you, there's a need to, to listen to and honor and, and respect those choices. And that can be a real challenge for families. And then it can be a very ch- real challenge for the, the providers who get caught in the middle uh, of that situation. Yeah, I think it's not going to be easy. Right. Right. And I think I think that's that's really interesting. You know, you've kind of had your own experience there Uh, is training. Is that sort of starting to evolve? You know, training's always been an issue in long term care and and Pioneer Network's been a major supporter of staff training in the field. So so I'm curious, how has staff training development changed since last October? You know, I don't know if it's changed yet, and I, and I think I, I think we're trying to figure out how to change it because one of the certainly one of the biggest challenges we have to training and education is is our resources, whether that be the time for education, uh, time being the biggest one, but certainly the dollars and everything as well. But I think we need to relook at it, and, and we're challenged right now because. We're seeing people with more clinically complex um, issues. You know, when I started as a nurse 30 years ago, people didn't live uh, very long when they had some of the chronic diseases that people are now living, you know, a long life with. So we're seeing so much more uh, from a technical, clinical standpoint that our teams are having to to uh, assure are managed well and safely in our in our communities. Sure. But so we've got that piece of our education to how to make sure that all happens. But at the same time, we've got to be educating our teams on how to be better leaders, how to be better teams, how to work together. Um, you know, how, how, how do you know? How do I really get to know someone? Uh, how do I, what, if I'm going to create a life story for you, that's wonderful, but what am I going to do with it uh, to make sure that my team is all involved and engaged and that I know how to use what I learned in that life story to help understand who you are and therefore understand your decisions that may be verbal, may be nonverbal, um, that you're making every day uh, for me. How do I know how to, to set, to help establish, you know, 
what are your goals and not just mine. Absolutely. Um, and those are skills that those are those are soft skills um, and pretty hard. You know, they can they take a lot of common sense, which, as my mom used to say, common sense ain't such a common commodity. Um, <laughs> and, and so we're, I have a very wise mom. Um, and uh, and so you know we're facing some different challenges than we faced back in the old day when uh, I was the manager and we set the rules and this is what we did and everybody just goes off and fills out their checklist at the end of the day. If the checklist is done, we've had a good day. Um, life is changing because that's not how we're evaluating a good day anymore. Um, so it's tougher. I want to advance on that a little bit, Joan. Let's get a little granular here. What it, we, we talk about person-centered care. What are some of the resources telling us right now on, on things like dining standards and language? What are you seeing in the field right now? Well, you know, language, that's an interesting one. Um, we're, we're still kind of stuck on our old, on our old language, uh, and I personally am a, am a firm believer in the power of language, as is Pioneer Network. Um, one of the words that we see over and over again in uh, the regulations that, quite frankly, make many of us cringe is, is now, please understand when I say this, it's not what you could first think, uh, sure. and that is the use of the F word, um, and, and the F word is facility. That, um, you know, that we call this home that we're trying to create a facility right then and there puts a, puts a, uh, a, an image, you know, in one's, in one's mind, which early on may not have been the wrong image. The, you know, the big cinder block building with the double loaded corridors and big, huge open rooms that were, you know, relatively, uh, stark in terms of, of what we had. And, you know, certainly we don't see that as much as we used to, which is a wonderful thing, but that's not where any of us think of when we think of where we want to live. Um, and so even, even the regulations and even back as early as when Obra, uh, first came out called home-like, but I always challenge people, uh, do you want your food to be food? or would you like it to be food-like? So why would I want my home to be home-like? You know, let's stop pretending and let's create what is real because home to people isn't just bricks and mortar. When you ask people to define home to them, rarely do they tell you about a building. They tell you about relationships. They tell you about people. They tell you about my home is my castle where I can make the decisions, where I can be me and it doesn't matter to anybody else. Um, so that whole concept of, of creating the environment and the experience um, is huge as we as we go through this journey as we try to def, as we are looking to identify what quality of life really is all about for someone and I think you know then you go back to dining is a great example and it's one that a lot of people have um, have kind of embraced early on uh, in in their journey to try to change the culture uh, because we know dining is much more than just it's not just about getting nutrition into my body. Um, dining is a very social experience. Um, many of our memories um, are are surrounded. It's food. They're about food. The places we experience food, the type of foods that we have for things. Right. So trying to change that. And that's been happening for a long time. Uh, back in, uh, oh, uh, quite a number of years ago, I don't know the exact date, but there was a, a symposium on dining that was uh, sponsored by uh, CMS and the Pioneer Network and several other organizations. And uh, 
and talking about the new dining service, what dining service standards, and they were embraced by many, many organizations, including the American Medical Directors Association, the American Dietetics Association, and the American Dietetics Association has had a paper out for probably better than 15 years now that talks about liberalized diets for the elderly. Um, and yet, we, we didn't really practice that. So, you know, looking at some of those things, the resources are there. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that Pioneer Network has some wonderful resources on our website in terms of understanding the new dining service standards and, and how to uh, put those, in, you know, how to incorporate those into your setting and into your, into your practices and your community. And I think it's a central one because it is such an important thing to all of us. It happens three times a day, uh, at least. Uh, and for most of us, it ought to be ha- it, it it does happen more than that because anytime I want to, I can pop down to the refrigerator or or open up a cabinet and and grab something to eat, and that's part of home. And so that's part of you know how do we create that um, for our elders? Instead of giving you a supplement because you don't like the way I feed you, um, why don't I make the dining experience something that? satisfies your need uh, and meets your individual needs. I think too, Joan, you know, when you talked about language, one thing stood out to me, and that's elder speak, this concept of sweetie uh, or honey, you know, referring to fully grown adults as, you know, talking to them in a certain way. I I know this has been a passion of Pioneer Network in the past. Can you speak a little bit to that and sort of how that plays into creating a person-centered environment? Yeah, I think think it comes down to you've got to know people and you've got to respect who they are and and your language has to, has to, it, it has to be the right language within your community. And for most of us, that is not how we want to be treated. And, you know, I, I, you're right, I've thought about that a lot. And you think about the time that you go, you go to a restaurant and the waitress, you know, calls you honey or sweetie or dear. Right. And, and I can tell you myself, I've gotten much more cognizant of that when it happens. And, and I'll sit there and I'll listen, and it'll aggravate me a little bit. Um, but I don't say anything. And, you know, partially I don't say anything because none of us likes confrontation, uh, particularly the other is, you know, I'm going to be gone in an hour and it'll be over with. And then I kind of thought about that and I thought, what must that be like for our residents living in our communities? That all of a sudden somebody starts calling them in those terms. Have we really created an environment where they feel so powerless that they don't speak up? that they don't say anything. When I call Mrs. Jones, who has never been called anything but Mrs. Jones by anyone who is younger than, you know, her peers, when I call her Mary, um, have I asked her if it's okay to call her Mary? Right. Or have I just assumed that in this situation it's okay? And and we have a population of elders, and we still do, who are from that generation where they uh, they are more willing to just kind of comply. And we know we institutionalize people very, very quickly um, in our settings. I think it's going to be interesting because I know I'm speaking for myself, and I am a baby boomer. Um, I don't think I'm going to be quite so pliable. Um, and, and so I think we're in for an interesting ride. If we, if we don't change, if we're not open to change, we're going to find ourselves, I think, with some fairly rebellious seniors um, that are going to push us that direction. Um, so to me, I would rather move along on my own terms than wait until somebody pushes me into it. 
<laughs> so I, I think I think it's interesting, and, and and many of us, you know, many of us, I find as providers are kind of hitting that age as well. So we're seeing this from a from a different perspective than we did uh, 30 years ago. <laughs> we'll return to our conversation with Joan Devine after this word from our supporting sponsor, the Fall Memory Care Forum. As conference producer and educational programmer for the Fall Forum, uh, I can speak to this firsthand. Come join me next week in San Diego, uh, September 14th through 15th, as a host of national experts descend upon San Diego for a two-day educational programming experience like few other conferences in long-term care. Hear from diverse perspectives, including two physicians, several national memory care directors, two authors, a team from the Veterans Land Board in Texas, uh, which is a VA-affiliated organization, a CEO and a COO, two attorneys, a pharmacist, and a community of nationally recognized experts. As part of this event, continuing education hours will be offered from the Association of Social Work Boards, the American Psychological Association, the National Association of Long-Term Care Administrator Boards, or NAB, NCCDP for their National Certification Program, and the National Certification Council for Activities Professionals. Activity professionals. So it's not too late to register. Uh, be sure to visit iAdvancedSeniorCare.com and click the Memory Care Forums link to register today. Again, that's iAdvancedSeniorCare.com and click the Memory Care Forums link. And now back to our conversation with Joan Devine. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm it's sure. A perspective. Yeah, I, I think I think it is healthy and you know a little bit of a sort of walk in their shoes kind of moment. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think I think too of the things that have changed dramatically too with these CMS regulations. I find more and more when we have conversations that acute care is now more part of the experience, more integrated into the experience. You know, let's say a resident has a fall and unfortunately needs to be hospitalized, reintegrating them back with those transitions of care, that partnership in the community. What are you seeing on that front in relation to the CMS guidelines? Well, I think it's a, I mean, I think in general it's, it's a huge challenge for us, um, and it has, it has really shifted the focus for many, many communities because that short stay, um, the, the, the changes in the home Medicare uh, program uh, have impacted so greatly the need to partner with hospitals. And, and I think sometimes we fail to have the voice that we need to have as providers because our providers have incredible expertise. They know seniors. They know geriatric care. Um, and I worked in both worlds. I, I worked in the hospital for a number of years. And it, it is an expertise what we do in long-term care, and I don't know that it's valued as such. And I can specifically say that as a nurse, as a nurse, being the nurse who works in the nursing home is kind of down on the totem pole in terms of the hierarchy of nursing. And I think that's a very unfair place to put nursing because a truly good skilled nurse in long-term care um, has a, is very much practicing within a specialty. Um, and I, I don't think we, 
I don't think we always recognize that, and I don't think I don't think others outside of long-term care recognize that because we really got to know our folks. We have to understand subtleties. Um, nobody came to us and said this is exactly what's wrong. You know what somebody's situation is, and here's the exact thing to do to to fix it. Um, we have to understand that Mrs. Smith, when she starts to to show these signs, these subtle signs, it means we may have an exacerbation of her COB, COPD pending. Um, if we don't deal with it, or it, it sure. could be a UTI, um, or, or whatever it might be. I, I don't have I don't have a doctor there telling me um, all the time uh, that that's what it is. So uh, it's a it's very much of a specialty, and I, I think. I, this is my own personal. I, I truly believe we need to to raise our voice more to that. Um, we we can help advocate for seniors in general because of the knowledge and skills we have and have acquired through our work in long term care and with seniors for so long. And we can help the hospitals and, and others outside of our setting understand better. Um, how to get to know these folks, how to get to know our seniors, how to get to um, design care and services that are right for them. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I, I, I'll share that, you know, as we look at the short stay, um, you don't want me to be a little mini hospital because if I'm a little mini hospital, I'm going to keep somebody in a very controlled setting for maybe another, you know, two to three weeks, and then they're going to go home and going to do whatever they're going to do. Right. Um, I want to know that Mrs. Jones, who came to me as a brittle diabetic, is going to eat a bowl of ice cream every night before she comes to goes to bed, no matter how much I teach her that that's too much sugar for her. So let's have that bowl of ice cream while she's with me, and let's see what Let's, let's be able to respond to it and adjust medication or do whatever it is we need to do so that when she goes home in the real world, she isn't going to crash and burn. Um, she will, you know, she will be safe. And those are things we can do. I think those are things that we do and they're based on relationship and they're based on knowing uh, the individual. And, and to me, those are just key. And, and all of those things, Joan, thinking about that, you know, it, it actually reminded me, too, of, of of memory care. And when I think about memory care, there's a lot of hurdles, a lot of unique challenges, especially when it relates to staffing, especially when it relates to training and communication, all of those aspects. You know, you mentioned paying attention to the individual, the, the resident, uh, at a granular level is really critical, uh, I think, in memory care success. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think I think you know we've talked about life stories for a long time. Um, I think getting to know somebody is so very critical, and not just a cursory "What time do you get up in the morning? What time do you go to bed?" But really understanding you know who this person is, what their values have been, what are the things that make you nervous, what are the things that uh, excite you, uh, you know what has what has a good life always meant uh, to this person, and how has that changed over the years? Because certainly. We know someone living with dementia. Um, that they're, you know, how they, who they are, changes over time, oftentimes. And if we don't understand all the different aspects and how that might be changing in terms of their life history, how are we going to respond to it? And so taking that, but but then not just understanding and learning that information, but how do we make sure that that's communicated to our team? Um, how do we make sure we understand, you know, perhaps where the connections are that we have with that person, so that when I see that quote-unquote behavior and you know most of us just hate that word anymore um, right. because that's a symptom 
that's a symptom. That isn't the problem. And we've always been very, very good at just slapping a Band-Aid on the problem, but it never really goes away. Um, and and somehow we need to, this is where we go back to that team and, and learning how to work as a team and critically think and problem solve and really hone in on what is it that's really going on that's causing, you know, Mrs. Jones to to uh, to strike out at someone or to yell, you know, is she in pain? Is she, you know, is it, is it you know, in that situation, oftentimes in a situation that becomes uh, uh, particularly that resident who strikes out at somebody, sure. you know, I, I always say to staff, there's two of us in this situation, and one of us has the ability to, to really control what we're doing right now. The other one may not. So who is it that needs to change and adapt? And, you know, if someone walked into your room in the middle of the night and flipped on a light and all of a sudden was standing over you, might you not reach out and, and, and inadvertently smack them? You would think um, so. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would think so too. So you know, who who really had the issue there? Who really had the behavior? Was it was it the resident or was it me who was inappropriate in how I approached that whole situation? Um, so I think we're really challenging people that you've got to look different. Um, at this, and you, you got to look to yourself. I think in this whole journey, there's an awful lot of introspection uh, that has to happen because it's a personal journey as well as a as an organizational journey um, to change your culture. And uh, uh, we've got to be able to look at that. We've got to be able to look deeper, and we've got to really be willing to open ourselves up and uh, build and develop relationships. And that that that's at the core, really, of all of this. And you know, by building relationships, we're seeing outcomes, aren't we, Joan? We're seeing better quality of life measurements. Hey, what, what what kind of data are you seeing on this? You know, we have seen some inform- We've seen some data from uh, the as I, I talked about the uh, studies that were done for. Um, uh, Excuse me, I'm sorry. I was thinking about the, uh, the the engaging staff in individualized care. We've seen some data come out of that. We've recently also, and I'm real excited because we've got a, actually a session in our conference about this, the team from, uh, there's a team from Signature Health who uh, is a large uh, organization based out of Louisville, and they have actually done, uh, recently published research on person-directed care and its financial and clinical impacts on the organization um, and how it has benefited them. And actually it is... Uh, Two of their staff, including their uh, chief operating officer, uh, Chris Cox, who is going to be presenting at, at Pioneer. So it's very exciting to start to see organizations that um, are out there and doing the work and really seeing the difference it makes in their organization uh, as well as for their individual residents. That's that, that's really, really interesting stuff. And, and Chris sounds terrific. Yeah. You know, it, it, I, I think, too, yeah. It, when I think of folks like Chris, and you know, I think about chief operating officers, your CEOs, your presidents, your executive leadership, w- what message would you have for them? Uh, what practical recommendations or tools would you have for the executive who's really trying to lead that culture change? Well, I'm not sure if I, I'm the one that has the answers for them, but I can tell you <laughs> that the first thing I would say to them is they are absolutely critical. They're absolutely critical to the journey uh, because so many of us have experienced uh, stories, and we can unfortunately tell the stories 
of organizations who were doing wonderful work in person-centered care, um, had leadership in, in middle management in the organization that truly were, were making some changes, and then changes happened there. And if the, if the, the man or woman at the top of the organization really doesn't believe it, doesn't support it, doesn't understand it, then too often times you see things fall apart uh, because all we've had is practices. We haven't had real culture change. Um, for that real culture change to happen, it's imperative that senior leadership be the one driving it, uh, be the one believing in it uh, and supporting it uh, in every way that they can. And and that's a real challenge for us because it is. You know, we understand there is the uh, there is a lot of how we've always done things, and you know, there's nothing I can tell you as a nurse leader. There was nothing that frustrated me more than when you asked staff why they did something, and the answer was because we've always done it that way. Right. Um, that that just doesn't make it right, and yet we are creatures of habit. And you know, with all the changes in the regulation, with all the changes coming in reimbursement, um, it's certainly understandable that senior leadership um, is challenged uh, by all of this. But really, changing your organization, uh, changing your you know, looking at the values and the mission, uh, what drives your organization, and driving it from that person-centered focus is so important. And that's not just that's not just the resident. That's your staff. You know, when we're talking about all this, when we're talking about relationships, building relationships, um, you know, we've always, I, since since my early days in, in leadership, you know, you always learned the, the, the most critical relationship in an organization is between that staff member and their first-line manager yep. um, and having that relationship, uh, knowing that they're cared about. Uh, how can I ask you to do what you don't receive? So uh, the Eden Alternative has a, uh, has a golden rule. And it's it's a wonderful one, and it's as staff does as excuse me as management does unto staff, so staff shall do unto elders. So if I want you to value relationships, if I want you to value that the elder can make decisions in their life, then I have to show that to you. Then as right. a manager, as a leader, I have to be willing to invest in you and grow a relationship with you, and I have to be willing to ask you and have you a participant in how we design care and practices in our organization, and I have to really mean it, and I have to be willing to follow through on it, and that means I've got to let go, and letting go is hard. Um, most of, most of us who've gone into to leadership positions, and I'm, I'm, I'm certain those who have gone into much more senior leadership positions than I've ever been in, um, these are good people who have great ideas uh, and can and can do wonderful things. So that can be hard when when you've kind of built you know your your skill set in in learning how to fix things uh, and and. To, to be willing to say, okay, I'm more of a facilitator, um, and I've got to I've got to surround myself with really good people, Absolutely. and then I've got to let them uh, do the things that they can do. Uh, that's not. I'm guessing that's not very easy. Yeah, and, and and I think I think too. I love your point about bringing executive leadership and and all frontline staff together and the necessity for that as a frontline staff member too like knowing that i'm a critical piece of the puzzle like if i'm a cna it, yeah. it really starts and ends with me like i have a critical piece and yeah. a critical investment in this entire process do i not yeah 
Yeah, and you've got you've got so much knowledge, you've got so much ability to make a difference on a real basis every single day. Um, and am I am I really affording you those opportunities um, for that to happen? And and I and I need to if I really want to grow. I think the way we want, and if I want that CNA to stay, these are these are adults, these are intelligent people, um, and it's a very very challenging and, and difficult job. And I make it more difficult for you when I don't let you have when I don't give you the voice um, that you ought to have. So if I want to retain good people, I need to I need to empower them. I need to give them opportunities. Uh, and I think that that comes back to you know that that whole I mean that's one of our underlying issues is the whole workforce crisis and how do we get and keep good people and I I think that's a big piece of how we get uh, good people is we give them the ability to to excel to shine um, and to make a difference because we all want that no doubt no doubt well it, thank you so much uh, Joan Devine. Uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to working with the Pioneer Network and hearing more about the events. Really looking forward to the future. Thank you so much for your time, Joan. Stupid. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you once again to Joan Devine at the Pioneer Network for her time. As Joan mentioned, they provide a host of excellent resources to the community and is a terrific supporter of the IAS community. You can find out more information about Joan and the Pioneer Network at www.pioneernetwork.net. As a friendly reminder, please be sure to visit our supporting sponsor today, the Fall Memory Care Forums. The Fall Memory Care Forum, hosted by the Institute for the Advancement of Senior Care, will be hosted September 14th through 15th at the Estancia La Jolla Resort and Spa in beautiful La Jolla, California, just outside of San Diego. And we'll address many of the most critical issues uh, outlined in this podcast and uh, specific to memory care, uh, person-centered care, and recommendations around quality improvement and best practices. Continuing education hours will be offered from the Association of Social Work Boards, the American Psychological Association, the National Association of Long-Term Care Administrator Boards, or NAB, N-A-B, NCCDP, uh, and the National Certification Council for Activity Professionals. Uh, it's not too late to register, so be sure to visit iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and click the Memory Care Forums link to register today. Again, that's iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and click the Memory Care Forums link. You've been listening to the iAsk podcast. Our Vice President and Managing Director is Jennifer Turney. Ian Marty is our program producer. Mark Lindbergh is our supporting web developer. I'm Adam Armstrong, and thank you for listening. We look forward to you visiting again uh, in the next episode of the I Ask podcast.